have had several mass killings in the United States of America over the last month. No, we do not need more political speeches. We do not need more legislation. We do not need the confiscation of guns. What do we need and why does this keep happening? Dr. Bill Petrie will look at the solution to our sick society. Humanity is broken. It seems with each new day there is some new calamity that grips our nation and world. Just days ago, we had a shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a medical campus. It was the latest mass shooting that took place in America. This follows the shooting at an elementary school in Texas where 19 children and two teachers lost their lives. A travesty of epic proportions, especially for the families who lost a loved one. Both of these shootings comes on the heels of the shootings in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, that killed 10, and multiple shootings in California over the last month. Then, on any day of the week, you can search Chicago shooting, and there are headlines to be found. Considering the latest shooting in Texas, it did not take people long to look past the sorrow of the victim's family to politicize the event. President Joe Biden appears to be one of the first. I want you to listen to a short clip of our president. Just got off a trip from Asia, meeting with Asian leaders. I learned of this while I was on the aircraft. What struck me on that 17-hour flight, what struck me was these kinds of mass shootings rarely happen anywhere else in the world. Why? They have mental health problems. They have domestic disputes in other countries. They have people who are lost. But these kinds of mass shootings never happen with the kind of frequency they happen in America. Why? Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone? And the courage to deal with it and stand up to the lobbies. It's a time to turn this pain into action. For every parent, for every citizen in this country, we have to make it clear to every elected official in this country, it's time to act. It's time for those who obstruct or delay or block the common sense gun laws. We need to let you know that we will not forget. We can do so much more. We have to do more. Did you catch what Biden said? Mass shootings, especially in schools, only happen in America. Do you believe that? I hope not. It is not true. Not at all. It is propaganda. Globally, the United States does not even rank in the top 10 school massacres of all time. In fact, you will not find the United States until number 13. And that incident took place in 1927. It is called the Bath School Disaster, and it involved dynamite 
not a gun. And to this day, it is the worst school attack in the United States. So I ask the question, are guns really the problem? Instead of focusing on the family, Biden did what radical liberals always do, go for the guns. In a longer version of the speech, Biden continually says, in God's name or for God's sake. It seems the only time we say God anymore is when we want to emphasize a political point. Disappointing. Not to be left out, California Governor Gavin Newsom joined ranks. Newsom quickly forgot about the Laguna Woods Church shooting, the San Bernardino Party shooting, and the downtown Sacramento shooting that recently took place in his own state. All in a state with some of the most strict gun laws in the entire country. It is obvious Newsom's concern does not lie with the broken-hearted family members. Instead, he seeks to demonize firearms and advance his party's political agenda. Personally, I find that disgusting. As sad as these two responses are, nothing beats former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who interrupted Texas Governor Greg Abbott's press conference on the Texas shooting. Abbott's response was absolutely fantastic. He did not berate Beto's disgraceful attempt to shame him. Instead, Abbott turned to the family and America and kept the focus on the issue at hand, their sorrow. Instead of jumping to the conclusion that we need to ban guns whenever there is a shooting, we need to start asking the real questions. We need to find the root cause of the problem. And it is not guns. The underlying argument for gun control seems to be that the availability of guns causes crime. By extension, the availability of any weapon would have to be viewed as a cause of crime. What does the Bible say about such a view? Perhaps we should start at the beginning, or at least very close to the beginning in Genesis 4. In this chapter, we read about the first murder. Cain had offered an unacceptable sacrifice, and Cain was upset that God insisted that he do the right thing. In other words, Cain was peeved that he could not do his own thing. Cain decided to kill his brother rather than get right with God. There were no guns available, although there may well have been a knife. Whether it was a knife or a rock, the Bible does not say. The point is, the evil in Cain's heart was the cause of the murder, not the availability of the murder weapon. God's response was not to ban rocks or knives or whatever the weapon was, but to banish the murderer. Exodus chapter 22 verses 2 and 3 tells us, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. 
He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. One conclusion which can be drawn from this is that a threat to our life is to be met with lethal force. After the sun has risen seems to refer to a different judgment than the one permitted at night. At night, it is more difficult to discern whether the intruder is a thief or a murderer. Furthermore, the nighttime makes it more difficult to defend oneself and to avoid killing the thief at the same time. During the daytime, it had better be clear that one's life was in danger. Otherwise, defense becomes vengeance, and that belongs in the hand of God. In Proverbs 25, verse 26, we read, A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. Certainly, we would be faltering before the wicked if we chose to be unarmed and unable to resist an assailant who might be threatening our life. In other words, we have no right to hand over our life, which is a gift from God, to the unrighteous. It is a serious mistake to equate a civilized society with one in which the decent people are doormats for the evil to trample on. As I noted earlier, the Bible records the first murder in Genesis 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel. God's response was not to register rocks or impose a background check on those getting a plow or whatever it was that Cain used to kill his brother. Instead, God dealt with the criminal. Ever since Noah, the penalty for murder has been death. We see the refusal to accept this principle that God has given us from the very beginning. Today, we see a growing acceptance of the idea that checking the criminal backgrounds of gun buyers will lessen crime. But we should seldom execute those who are guilty of murder. In Matthew 15, and also in Mark chapter 7, Christ accused the religious leaders of the day of also opposing the execution of those deserving of death, rebellious teenagers. They had replaced the commandments of God with their own traditions. God has never been interested in controlling the means of violence. He has always made it a point to punish and, where possible, restore, as with restitution and excommunication, the wrongdoer. Control of individuals is to be left to the local government. Punishment of individuals by the civil government is to be carried out when self-governments break down. Man's wisdom today has been to declare gun-free school zones, which are invaded by gun-toting teenage terrorists whom we refuse to execute. We seem to have learned little from Christ's rebuke of the Pharisees. Nowhere in the Bible does God make any provision for dealing with the instruments of crime. He always focuses on the consequences for an individual of his actions. Responsibility only pertains to people, not to things. If this principle, which was deeply embedded in the common law, still pertained today, 
lawsuits against gun manufacturers would be thrown out unless the product malfunctioned. Responsibility rightly includes being liable for monetary damages if a firearm is left in a grossly negligent fashion so that an ignorant child gets the gun and misuses it. The solution is not to require that trigger locks be used on a gun to avoid being subject to such a lawsuit. Some might argue that this is nothing more than an application of the biblical requirement that a railing be placed around the flat rooftop of a house where people might congregate. But trigger locks are to be used with unloaded guns, which would be the same as requiring a railing around a pitched roof where people do not congregate. Surely, in protecting against accidents, we cannot end up making ourselves more vulnerable to criminal attack, which is what a trigger lock does if it is in use on the firearm intended for self-protection. The firearm that is kept for self-defense should be available in an emergency. Rooftop railings have no correspondence to the need for instant access to a gun. On the other hand, guns that are not intended for immediate use should be kept secured as a responsible precaution. But to make the owner criminally or monetarily liable for another's misuse violates a basic commandment of Scripture. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself, Ezekiel 18 verse 20 states. I recall talking to old-timers at the nursing home I used to work for when I was in college. They would tell me, when we went to high school, we all had rifles on the gun rack in our pickups. We all went hunting after school. I remember the first time that I heard that. I thought no one was ever concerned that someone was going to go shoot up a school. The pickups were unlocked, and so were the rifles. Then I remember back in the late 80s, my friend's dad had a rifle on the gun rack of his pickup. It is just what guys did back then, and no one thought anything about it. We did not have mass shootings then, and guns were in plain sight. So the problem is not guns. Something changed. We changed. Our nation changed. And so did our world. We have a crime problem. Let me explain. On the morning of March 2nd, 1998, Patrick Kennedy called 911 to report the rape of his eight-year-old stepdaughter. So detestable was this crime that the U.S. Supreme Court conceded the petitioner's crime was one that cannot be recounted in these pages in a way sufficient to capture in full the hurt and horror inflicted on his victim or to convey the revulsion society and the jury that represents it sought to express by sentencing the petitioner to death, end of quote. After further investigation, 
Kennedy was charged with the aggravated rape of his stepdaughter. Louisiana law allowed the district attorney to seek the death penalty for defendants found guilty of raping children under the age of 12. The jury unanimously determined that Kennedy should be sentenced to death. Kennedy appealed the sentence all the way to the highest court in the state, but the Louisiana Supreme Court reaffirmed the imposition of the death sentence in 2007. Kennedy again appealed all the way to the United States Supreme Court. In a five to four decision that was split down ideological lines, liberal versus conservative, the liberal vote carried the day five to four. It stated the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the Louisiana court's decision commuting Kennedy's death sentence. The court held that it is unconstitutional for states to impose the death penalty for the rape of a child where the assault did not result in the child's death. The death penalty in such a case would be deemed an exercise of cruel and unusual punishment. Consider some of the remarks offered by the court to justify this unconscionable, reprehensible, morally degraded decision. I quote, Evolving standards of decency must embrace the express respect for the dignity of the person, and the punishment of criminals must conform to that rule. End of quote. Here's another quote. When the law punishes by death, it risks its own sudden descent into brutality, transgressing the constitutional commitment to decency and restraint. End of quote. And still another quote from the case. The death penalty can be disproportionate to the crime itself, where the crime did not result or was not intended to result in the death of the victim. End of quote. And still another quote from the decision. Rape is without deserving of serious punishment. But in terms of moral depravity and of the injury to the person and to the public, it does not compare with murder which does involve the unjustified taking of human life, end of quote. In complete harmony with the leftist trend that commenced in the 1960s, in which focus shifted from the rights of the victim to the rights of the perpetrator, observe that the liberal element on the court showed uncanny concern for the dignity of the criminal while manifesting a corresponding disregard for the dignity of the victim. They also made the ridiculous comparison of lawful, prudent application of the death penalty to the unlawful, senseless crimes of the wicked, even implying that use of the death penalty conflicts with decency and restraint. This would mean that God was indecent and unrestrained when he personally invoked the death penalty on millions throughout Old Testament history. An example would be the flood of Noah. 
in numerous Levitical laws. The five justices clearly did not know God. This contention that death is justifiable only in cases where murder has been committed implies that if Kennedy would have killed his stepdaughter after raping her, the liberals on the court may have been more willing to invoke the death penalty, although they indicated that even then, the criminal would have had to commit a particularly depraved murder, even though the rape was so serious it required four different surgeries on an eight-year-old girl. But their unwarranted assumption pitches judicial evaluation into the realm of subjective human opinion that changes with the fickle whims of culture. In fact, the opinion of the court based much of its rationale on whether there exists national consensus on the propriety of capital punishment in cases of child rape, as if objective moral value is determined by majority human opinion. In Buffalo, New York, the, the individual accused of the murder of those 10 innocent people will never face the death penalty because in New York State, the victim has less rights than the perpetrator. The justice's exclusion of the principles of Christian morality that once guided American courts prevents them from acknowledging the only ultimate standard of authority for deciding when a death penalty is warranted. No human has it within himself to legislate on such a matter. Only God can define the conditions under which humans may take the life of other humans. What's more, to maintain that invoking the death penalty is a disproportionate act when the criminal does not actually kill his victim, commits one to the absurd position that the criminal can subject his victim to excruciating sadistic torture, anguish, and suffering as long as he keeps his victim alive. And he could persist in his assaults for years with a child of any age and still not receive the death penalty. The justices clearly have no grasp of, let alone sympathy for, the untold, unimagin unimaginable damage perpetrated not only on the tender body of Kennedy's stepchild, but on the child's spirit. And the same is true in school shootings. What of the child's emotional, psychological, mental well-being? What is the emotional, psychological, mental, and spiritual havoc inflicted? I bet it is indescribable and unfathomable, literally beyond comprehension. A part of these children was murdered, changing them forever. 
most children subjected to such heinous acts are permanently scarred and many are doomed for the rest of their lives to wander aimlessly with a tortured soul, a twisted outlook, and an unrecoverable existence. Post-traumatic stress disorder and numerous other mental illnesses can result. We have bred a condition in our country where our children are falling prey to these terrible, terrible consequences of our failure to punish the criminal. In fact, to many of these children, death would be mercifully preferable to living with the aftermath. Ironically, our, our courts oftentimes acknowledge this. Again, in the Kennedy case, the Supreme Court stated, the attack was not just on her, but on her childhood. Rape has a permanent psychological, emotional, and sometimes physical impact on the child. We cannot dismiss the years of long anguish that must be endured by the victim, end of quote. Yet, that is precisely what the courts proceeded to do, dismiss the anguish. According to the majority of the court, extending capital punishment to the rapist of a child would be excessive, cruel, and unusual punishment since America's evolving standards of decency mark the progress of a maturing society. Indeed, the court insisted that executing all child rapists could not be reconciled with our evolving standards of decency and the necessity to constrain the use of the death penalty. Unbelievable. If anything verifies that we as a society are not maturing, but that we are in fact devolving from superior standards of decency and morality, it is surely our uncivilized, barbaric, unconscionable treatment of children in the last 40 years, from the butchery of abortion, to the savagery of sexual abuse, to the crime of murdering them in places where they should be safe. The only legitimate way to evaluate and regulate human behavior is to look to our creator. He is the one who, in the words of the founders of the American Republic, created all men, endowed them with life, provides them with the laws of nature and of nature's God, and who functions as the supreme judge of the world. Those words come from the Declaration of Independence, written in 1776. If human opinion becomes the standard for judging ethical behavior, nothing 
but confusion, contradiction, and inconsistency can result. The God of the universe gave the law of Moses, which he authored to the Israelites at Mount Sinai over three millennia ago. Well, that law code was specifically addressed to the Hebrews and has such since been terminated by God himself, as we see in Colossians 2.14 and Hebrews 8.13 and Hebrews 10.9. Nevertheless, that law provides permanent perspective on a proper attitude toward and punishment for criminal behavior. Since God is perfect and infinite in all his attributes, his directives to Israel concerning proper punishment of unethical and immoral human behavior ought to serve as the ultimate model for any nation's legal system. The founders certainly accepted this conclusion and organized the republic accordingly. For example, Declaration signer John Witherspoon stated, and I quote, the Ten Commandments are the sum of the moral law. End of quote. The sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, wrote, and I quote, The law given from Sinai was a civil and, a mu and municipal, as well as a moral and religious code. It contained many statutes of universal application, laws essential to the existence of men in society, and most of which have been enacted by every nation which ever professed any code of laws. But the Levitical was given by God himself. It extended to a great variety of objects of infinite importance to the welfare of men. Vain indeed would be the search among the writings of profane antiquity to find so broad, so complete, and so solid a basis for morality as this Decalogue lays down. End of quote. Revolutionary War soldier and U.S. Congressman William Findlay stated, and I quote, as a clear and exact knowledge of the moral law of nature is peculiarly important in order to understand the whole system of revealed religion, I will state that it pleased God to deliver on Mount Sinai a compendium of this holy law and to write it with his own hand on durable tables of stone. This law, which is commonly called the Ten Commandments or Decalogue, has its foundation in the nature of God and of man, in the relation men bear to him and to each other, and in the duties which result from those relations. And on this account, it is immutable and universally ob uh, uh, obligatory that th this was incorporated in the judicial law. End of quote. Former governor of New York and U.S. Senator DeWitt Clinton wrote in 1849, The sanctions of the divine law cover the whole area of human action, 
The laws which regulate our conduct are the laws of man and the laws of God. Premier founder John Adams explained, If thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal were not commandments of heaven, they must be made inviolable precepts in every society before it can be civilized or made free. Other founders could be cited who understood that many of the laws that God gave to the Hebrews are absolutely necessary to civil society. Recognizing and respecting how God expected the Jews to deal with criminal behavior is critical to sustaining American society. Indeed, the Bible is the written word of God. Within its pages, we find the wisdom of God. We find what is best for the human race, both spiritually and as well as from a civil standpoint. So what is God's view of capital punishment? Both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament address this subject extensively. Let's look at the Old Testament teaching. Very early in human history, God decreed that murderers were to forfeit their own lives. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man, Genesis 9, 6 states. This standard continued into the Mosaic period. And you can see that in a passage like Numbers chapter 35 and verse 33. As a matter of fact, the law God gave to Moses to regulate Israelite civil society made provision for no fewer than 16 capital crimes. In 16 instances, the death penalty was to be invoked. The first four may be categorized as pertaining to civil matters. First, premeditated murder. You could look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 14, and verses 22 through 23. Leviticus chapter 24, in verse 17. And Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 through 21. This regulation even included the scenario in which two men might be brawling and in the process caused the death of an innocent bystander of her unborn infant, which incidentally implies that premeditated killing of an unborn children via abortion should be punished by death. It did not include accidental homicide, which we call manslaughter. Second, kidnapping. Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7 address this. Books and movies have been produced in recent years that describe the devastation created by this crime. One miniseries depicted the kidnapping of a seven-year-old boy as he was walking home from school. The man who stole him sexually assaulted him hundreds of times over the next seven years subjecting the child to untold emotional, psychological, and sexual abuse before the boy at age 14 escaped 
and was finally returned to his parents. You can read of the actual true event that the miniseries was, was adopted from in the book, I Know My Name, written in 1989. But he was a completely different person after this event and never again could that boy ever be the same. God would not tolerate such a thing in the Old Testament. And much of the same thing could be stopped in America if such crimes were taken as seriously as God himself takes them. The third is striking or cursing parents. Exodus 21 verses 15 and 17. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 9. And Jesus also alludes to this point in Matthew 15, 4 and Mark chapter 7, verse 10. The fourth, incorrigible rebelliousness. Deuteronomy 17, 12 addresses this. For example, a stubborn, disobedient, rebellious son who would not submit to parents or civil authorities was to be stoned to death. That's Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. The next six capital crimes can be identified as more specifically pertaining to religious matters. These are sacrificing to false gods, which you read about in Exodus 22.20, violating the Sabbath, which you read about in Exodus 35.2 and Numbers 15.32 through 36, blasphemy or cursing God. You see that in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10, going all the way through verse 23. False prophecy, that would be Deuteronomy 13, verse first 11 verses. The one who tried to entice the people to idolatry was to be executed, as were the people who were so influenced. The next one would be human sacrifice, Leviticus 20, verse 2. The Israelites were tempted to offer their children to false pagan deities, like Moloch but such was despicable to God. And you can see that in Jeremiah. The last one of these capital offenses is divination. And you read that in Exodus 22, 18 and Leviticus 19, verses 26 and 31, and Leviticus 20, verse 27. Those dabbling in the magical arts, witches, sorcerers, wizards, mediums, charmers, soothsayers, diviners, diviners, spiritists, and enchanters were to be put to death. And then the last six crimes pertained to sexual matters. And I want to talk about these briefly. First is adultery. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 through 21 in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, 
Can you imagine what would happen in our own country if adultery brought the death penalty? Most of Hollywood would be wiped out, as well as a sizable portion of the rest of our population. Second, bestiality, Exodus twenty-two nineteen. Having sexual relations with an animal. I don't think I have to discuss how repugnant and offensive and morally degrading that is. Third, incest. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 through 17. Fourth, homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 and Leviticus 20, verse 13. And I want to state briefly, there is no scientific evidence that has ever been given that states that homosexuality is something somebody is born with. In fact, most evidence seems to suggest that it is a choice. Next, number five, premarital sex. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20 through 21. Again, you can imagine what that would do to the population in the Western world. And last, rape. Rape of an engaged or married woman. Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 through 27. Again, imagine what would happen in this country if rape brought the death penalty. Much of the unconscionable treatment of women now taking place would be virtually eliminated. Capital punishment was the will of the Creator for the Jewish nation, the one civil government on earth that God Himself established. The death penalty was a viable form of punishment for at least 16 separate offenses. And I want to note here some people have misunderstood one of the Ten Commandments, which says, You shall not kill in Exodus 20.13. They have assumed that the law forbade taking human life under any circumstances, but this misconception is unwarranted and unsustainable, since God required the death penalty for certain crimes. Therefore, the commandment would have been better translated, you shall not murder. In other words, the command was a prohibition against an individual taking the law into his own hands and exercising personal vengeance. Biblically unauthorized killing or execution of human beings has never been acceptable to God. God wanted the execution of lawbreakers to be carried out by duly constituted legal authorities. What about the New, New Testament teaching? Moving into the New Testament, 
which reveals God's will this side of the cross after the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, by the way, are Old Testament books. The New Testament clearly teaches that capital punishment is God's will for human civilization. And it's important for us to note this. Paul in Acts 25.11 states, If I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying. For about the last 40 years, Americans have actually witnessed a breakdown on the part of our judicial and law enforcement system. In most cases, the government has failed to bear to, to, to act. The government has failed to impose the death penalty. Instead, the prison system has been overrun with incorrigible criminals. Premature parole and early release programs have become commonplace in order to make room for the burgeoning number of lawbreakers. The very first podcast of Differing Things addressed laws dealing with crime that was committed when restitution could be made and how the prison system should never even exist. If those laws of restitution were imposed and the death penalty was imposed in cases where restitution could not be made, we'd have no, we'd have no jails. It would be a radically different society. Like I said in Acts 25.11, the inspired Apostle Paul acknowledged that the state divinely possesses the power of life and death in the administration of civil justice. Likewise, if you or I commit a crime worthy of death, we should not object to dying. Jesus implied the propriety of capital punishment when he related the parable of the pounds. Those who rebelled against the king were to be brought and executed in his presence, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 27. Compare that parable with the one Jesus told about the wicked husbandman in Luke 20, verses 15 through 16, in which he indicated that the owner of the vineyard would return and destroy the vine dressers. Some will argue that capital punishment is not a deterrent. This objection has been raised in an effort to challenge the propriety of capital punishment and is the insistence by some that the death penalty serves no useful purpose especially when it comes to deterring other criminals from their course of action. Opponents insist capital punishment is not a deterrent to crime. This kind of humanistic, uninformed thinking has held sway for several decades. It might be believable if it were not for the inspired word of God informing us to the contrary. 
even if capital punishment did not serve as a deterrent, it still would serve at least one other worthwhile purpose, the elimination from society of those elements that persist in destructive behavior. The Bible teaches that some people can be hardened into a sinful, wicked condition. They have become so cold, so cruel, and so mean that even the threat of death does not faze them. Such was the case of the deranged 18-year-old who walked into a supermarket and murdered 10 people because they had a different skin color than him. Paul referred to these types of individuals as having their consciences seared with a hot iron in 1 Timothy 4.2. Some people are so hardened that they are described as past feeling and completely given over to wickedness in Ephesians 4.19. God invoked the death penalty upon an entire generation because their wickedness was great in the earth and every imagination of their thoughts of their heart was only evil continually in Genesis 6-5. So the human heart and mind can become so degraded and so alienated from right, good, and truth that a person can be incorrigible and irretrievable. The death penalty spares law-abiding citizens any further perpetration of death and suffering by those engaging in such repetitive actions. How horrible and senseless it is that so many Americans have had to suffer terribly at the hands of criminals who already have been found guilty of previous crimes, but who were permitted to go free and repeat their criminal behavior. Even if capital punishment was not a deterrent, it is still a necessary option in society. It holds in check the growth of, and spread of hardened criminals. This fact is reflected in God's repetitious use of the expression, so you shall put away from the evil from your midst. Just read passages like Deuteronomy 13.5, Deuteronomy 17.7, Deuteronomy 19.19, Deuteronomy 21.21, Deuteronomy 22.21, 1 Corinthians 15.3, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5.13. All of these passages talk about putting evil from your midst. But in actuality, the Bible clearly teaches that the application of the death penalty is, in fact, a deterrent. This divine insight is seen in God's imposition of the death penalty upon any individual, including one's relative, who attempted secretly to entice others into idolatry. Such a person was to be stoned to death, 
in the presence of the entire nation with this resulting effect. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. Let me repeat this. Deuteronomy 13.11 tells us why the death penalty is so important. It is so that the nation would hear and fear and not do again such wickedness as this. Another instance of this rationale is seen on the pronouncement of death upon the incorrigible rebel. And all the people shall hear in fear and no longer asked, act presumptuously, Deuteronomy 17.13 states. The principle is stated again when the Jews were instructed to take a rebellious and stubborn son and stone him to death with the effect that all Israel shall hear and fear. It's Deuteronomy 21.21. 21. This same perspective is illustrated even in the New Testament. Paul emphasized that elders in the church who sinned were to be rebuked publicly. Why? That others also may fear, 1 Timothy 5.20. And again, you can see something similar in 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Ananias and Sapphira, a Christian couple in the very early church, were, divine, were divinely executed in Acts chapter 5. And in the very next verse, Luke wrote, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. That's Acts 5.11. These passages prove that a direct link exists between punishment and execution on the one hand and the caution and sobriety that it instills in others on the other hand. The Bible teaches the corollary of this principle as well, where there is inadequate, insufficient, and delayed punishment, crime and violence increase. Solomon decreed, and I'm quoting Solomon here, um, from from actually Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. This very phenomenon is occurring even now all across America. The court system is clogged and backed up to the point that many cases do not come to trial literally for years. Criminals who have been shown to be guilty of multiple murders and other heinous crimes are given light sentences, while those who deserve far less are given exorbitant sentences. A mockery of the justice system has resulted. Such circumstances, according to the Bible, only serve to encourage more lawlessness, more gun shootings, more mass murders, more school shootings, more crimes of hate. The average citizen cannot help but grow lax 
in his own attitudes when justice is delayed. This principle is reflected in the biblical expression that the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If the Bible is to believed, capital punishment is indeed a deterrent to criminal behavior. The elimination of hardened criminals is necessary if societies are to survive. The liberal humanistic values that have held sway in America for the last 40 plus years are taking their toll. And getting back to God's view of things is the only hope. If this nation is to survive the tidal wave of criminal activity. Another objection that someone might raise is that capital punishment appears to be a rather extreme step to take since it is as cruel, barbaric, and violent as the action committed by the criminal himself. Is it not the case that capital punishment is resorting to the same kind of behavior as the criminal? And is not capital punishment resorting to vindictive retaliation? The biblical response to these questions is seen in the oft-repeated phrase, his blood be upon him. You can read that phrase, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, verse 13, and verse 27, Deuteronomy 19.10, Ezekiel 18.13, Ezekiel 33.5, and many others. And his blood be upon his own head can be read in passages such as Acts 18.6. Those who carry out the death sentence are in reality neutral third parties. They are merely carrying out the will of God and dispensing justice. The criminal is simply receiving what he brought upon himself, his just deserts. The expression, his blood be upon him, indicates that God assigns responsibility for the execution to the one being executed. It is like we tell small children, if you put your hand in the fire, you are going to get burned. There are consequences to our actions. The Apostle Paul states, if we sow to the flesh of the flesh, we will reap corruption. If we do not want to be executed, we should not commit any acts that merit death. If we do commit such an act, we have earned the death penalty, and we deserve to get what we have earned. The duly constituted judges, juries, and other legal authorities who met out the punishment are not to be blamed or considered responsible for the execution of the guilty. Rather than oppose those who promote capital punishment, painting them as insensitive ogres or uncaring, callous, uncivilized barbarians, effort would be better spent focusing upon the barbaric behavior of the criminals who rape, plunder, and pillage, who murder and torture, and all other horrific things that they do. It is their behavior that should be kept in mind. 
Tears of compassion ought to center on the innocent victims in their families. In my hometown of Buffalo, New York, there are 10 individuals who have died recently and their families are hurting. Their friends are hurting. Grandchildren will be deprived of their grandparents. Nieces will be deprived of their aunts. Sons and daughters are deprived of their fathers or mothers. Lethal injection of a wicked evil door hardly matches the violent, inhuman suffering and death experienced by the innocent victims of crime. The survivors continue to suffer while the perpetrator carries on for many years, many trials, and many appeals before justice is served, if ever. The God of the Bible is incensed and outraged at such circumstances. The time has come to start listening to him as he speaks through his inspired word. Somebody asked me, where was God in all this? He's exactly where our society put him, outside. If our society would heed to what he is saying, many of these senseless, needless acts of violence would even take place. In contrast to the flawed reasoning of the Supreme Court majority decision that was noted earlier in this podcast, follow God's logic. One, if kidnapping, whether an adult or a child, was a capital crime, before and without inflicting any harm on the child, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Exodus 21.16. If the rape of an engaged or married woman was also a capital crime, as Deuteronomy 22 verses 25 through 27 state, if sexual relations with a daughter was a capital crime, as Leviticus 18.17 states, then imagine how God feels about the person who would subject a precious, innocent, little, little children to the terror of violence in a school setting, and the judges who would reject the death penalty. Or think of what happens when some poor innocent child is kidnapped and raped by a pedophile, and the judges reject that death penalty. Surely, in the words of Jesus regarding offending children, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea, according to Matthew 18.6. With all the kindness and compassion we can muster, the truth is that the killers who would commit such abominable, loathsome behavior is depraved and should be eliminated permanently from society 
and those placed in solemn positions of judicial authority who in essence exonerate such a man by withholding the death penalty are equally depraved and warped in their moral sensibilities. God clearly considers some individuals to have forfeited their right to live in civil society. Their actions of, are of such gravity that they have earned death for themselves. His blood be upon him, and the rest of society deserves to be free of the inherent threat they pose to others. Those who reject this biblical assessment themselves possess degraded moral sensitivities and distorted spiritual faculties. In view of these observations and realizations, one cannot help but be horrified, sickened, and shocked that our criminal system has come to the place it has come to where these events become everyday occurrences. Our leaders ought to be ashamed, as should our judges. They need to be held to account for their reckless, ruthless failure to act on God's principles. It is precisely this lack of God in our society, this divorcing him out of every area of our life, including our laws against the violent criminal. This is what has changed our society. It has made society sicker, nastier, meaner, and yes, more violent. When our own governmental and judicial officials brush aside the moral principles authored by God, when they have allowed their moral sensitivities to be undermined and reshapen by secularism, anti-Christian ideology, and world opinion, when they no longer seek to emulate the mind of God and organize their thinking in harmony with his views, when they fail to abhor what is evil, according to Romans 12.9, the erosion of civil society is well underway. And that nation is doomed to destruction. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14.3 states. And I want to conclude with Ecclesiastes 8.11, which I read earlier. I want to read it in a more modern translation. And it states, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully 
to do evil. Did you get that? Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully or completely to do evil. I hope you have found this edition of differing things to be very challenging. I hope it instills in you a desire to look into the Word of God on what it has to say about these things. And when you do, you will see how sick our society really and truly is. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.